0: An ordinary three-story home in Central Gloucester became the focal point of Very Dark Secrets in 1994. The large family that lived at 25 Cromwell Street had been subject to a lot of rumors as one of their daughters seemingly vanished. Everyone worried about what happened to the girl, and her parents' changing stories brought fear to many. Why didn't she visit? Why did she break off all contact with everyone she knew? First, the parents would say that Heather took a job far away, a job she was initially rejected for. Next, people were told she married a woman and ran away. Then she was living a life with drug cartels. What was happening? Seven years had passed and no one heard from Heather, while her parents appeared to care less. Authorities were alerted by the web of lies the West parents spun. On February 24, 1994, Fred and Rose West's vile and twisted secrets would begin to trickle out when their garden would be dug up. The family had been the center of many rumors, but no one was prepared to hear of the most unthinkable acts that occurred in the House of Horrors. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. A link to today's show notes can be found in the description. Stay up to date, watch behind the scenes exclusives, find episode transcripts and more at my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon pages. You can also check out some of my items on sale in the Tamsin Lee shop. The links to all of these sites are also in the description. Don't forget to follow me so you don't miss an episode. Also if you like today's episode, give it a like and a comment. I am going to place a disclaimer in this episode, it is completely atrocious and vile. If you are sensitive to subjects such as domestic abuse, sexual assault, prostitution, incest, and anything else under the moon, please do not listen any further because some of the things I am going to say during this episode are more than just unpleasant. It's revolting and things that I never thought I would say. Today's case brings us to Gloucester England where one of the most horrific cases I had ever researched occurred. I could not believe the amount of physical, psychological, emotional, and sexual abuse that occurred in this house. Just the sheer amount of pain these children went through is just astounding. So let's take a look into the life of some of the worst human beings I have researched so far. Frederick Walter Stephen West was born on September 29, 1941, at Bickerton Cottage, Mutchmarkle, which is about 120 miles west of London. He was the first surviving child of Walter Stephen West and Daisy Hannah Hill. He entered this world with piercing blue eyes and blonde hair. His father, Walter, was described as a disciplinarian, while his mother, Daisy, was considered overprotective. Despite the war and the poverty in which the family lived, Walter and Daisy had eight more children, with only six surviving. All of them were born within ten years. Fred and his mother enjoyed a very close relationship and was known to be her favorite. He was described as her pet, and he would do everything she asked of him. He also had a reasonably good relationship with his father, whom he looked up to and considered to be his role model. The family moved to Moorcourt Cottage, located next to the Moorcourt Farm, which was on the outskirts of Muchmarkle in 1946. Fred's father worked as a milking herdsman and harvest hand at this farm. The cottage they lived in had no electricity and was heated by a log fire. As Fred grew older, his blonde hair became a curly, unkempt dark brown color and would go on to inherit his mother's big mouth and the gap between the two front teeth. Many would claim he was a scruffy-looking character. The West children were expected to perform assigned chores, as most children are when they're living on a farm. All six children would do seasonal work. The three boys would harvest wheat and hunt rabbits, while the three girls would pick hops and strawberries. The hard work of growing up on a farm instilled a strong work ethic in Fred. But, he also developed a lifelong habit of petty theft. While in school, he was not as favorable with his classmates as he was in his family. He was not the sharpest tool in the shed and would constantly get in trouble, for which he would be caned. His mother, who was seriously overweight, would go to the school to yell at the teacher for disciplining her favorite son something that made Fred the butt of many jokes as he was then labeled a mama's boy. Fred's classmates would recall him as being scruffy, dim, lethargic, and regularly in trouble. He would leave school in December 1956 at the age of 15, practically illiterate, to work as a farmhand on Moorcourt Farm. He would later claim that when he was 12 years old, his mother had sexually abused him. In his early teens, he engaged in acts of bestiality and that his belief that incest was normal stemmed from his father's incest with his sisters. He would claim that his father's logic was, I made you, so I'm entitled to have you. Fred would also go on to claim that he himself made one of his sisters pregnant. Whether these events were true or not is up for debate because he was a habitual liar as well. Fred's youngest brother would also go on to dismiss these claims as a fantasy. When Fred was 16, he took more care in his appearance to become more attractive to girls. He was described as extremely aggressive with the opposite sex and would go after any girl who caught his eye. At 17, Fred was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident which left him in a coma for a week. A metal plate was placed in his head and his leg was broken which resulted in him having one leg being permanently shorter than the other. Some believed that his head injury caused him to become prone to sudden fits of rage. They also believed that he appeared to lose control of his emotions. Which none of this is really new for anyone that listens to a lot of true crime podcasts and stuff. Usually when a person has a really bad head injury, it damages their brain and they lose control of, you know, their emotions and all the other kind of stuff. Even with a concussion it that can happen. Not long after his recovery, Fred would meet a 16-year-old girl named Catherine Bernadette Costello, also known as Rena. She was known to be in trouble with the law since early childhood. At 16 years old, she was an experienced thief. Almost immediately upon meeting, the pair became lovers. However, it was a short-lived romance, as Catherine would go back home to Scotland a few months later. But Fred wouldn't let this transient relationship get the better of him. He would soon find himself at a local youth club, standing on a fire escape with a young woman. He stuck his hand up her skirt. The woman, disgusted by his behavior, knocked him off the fire escape. Fred banged his head and lost consciousness. Between the accident and this incident, many have suggested it left a lasting impact on Fred's behavior and ultimately caused him to suffer from brain damage. In 1961, Fred would go on to steal a watch strap and cigarette case from a jewelry store with his friend. They wouldn't get far before they were caught with the merchandise in their possession And both would be fined. Only a few months later, Fred would be accused of impregnating a 13-year-old girl who was a friend of the family. But apparently, he didn't find anything wrong with his actions as he was uncooperative with authorities and even stated, well, doesn't everyone do it? His attitude and scandal caused an unforgivable fracture in the relationship with his family and he was soon cast out of the family home, a complete disgrace to his entire family. Away from his family and the farm, he would find work on construction projects, but it would not be long before he was caught stealing from the construction site and having sex with underage girls. At his trial for having sex and impregnating the 13-year-old, his physician would claim that Fred was suffering from epileptic fits. Because of this, he was let off without a jail sentence for a serious crime. Fred West was a convicted child molester and petty thief at the ripe old age of 20. While his family was ashamed of him, They would eventually allow him to return to their home in 1962. During the summer, Rena Costello came back from Scotland and immediately sought out Fred. A troubled girl who was an experienced teenage delinquent had a long record of prostitution and burglary. The pair seemed to be a perfect match for each other. It is speculated that Rena returned from Scotland because of her family's displeasure with her mixed-race pregnancy. At the time she returned to Fred, she was impregnated by an Asian bus driver. But the couple would go on to tell his parents that the child Rena was carrying was Fred's. The couple would secretly marry on November 17, 1962. The only guest in attendance was Fred's younger brother. Fred and his bride would live with his aunt for a little while before they moved to Coatbridge, where he worked as an ice cream van driver. Rena would give birth to her daughter Charmaine in March 1963. At her birth, Fred and Rina would write to his mother stating that their baby had died during childbirth and that Rina adopted a mixed-race child. While Rina had been a prostitute at various times throughout her life, she was not prepared for her husband's voracious sexual appetite. He very rarely wanted to have sex conventionally. At all hours of the day and night, he wanted oral bondage, and sodomy. With his job as an ice cream truck driver, he was provided with unlimited access to so many young women, basically a predator's paradise. He appeared as polite, trustworthy, and sincere. His ability to tell interesting and captivating tales made him even more attractive to teenage girls who came to his ice cream truck. While he continuously seduced many young women, his obligations to Rena and Charmaine seemingly turned into afterthoughts. But he would remain extremely possessive of his wife and kid. In 1964, Rena and Fred had a daughter named Anna Marie. Their marriage seemingly became on again, off again for several years. The family nanny, Issa McNeil, And neighbors reported that Fred was harsh to the children, while Rena was a good mother who struggled to bring up two young children. But what made Fred so harsh was that he kept the children in the bottom bunk of a bunk bed. He had fitted the bottom bunk with bars, keeping them locked up as if they were in a cage. They were only allowed out of this makeshift cage when he was at work. It was during this time that Fred and Rena met 16-year-old Anna McFall through their nanny. When she became acquainted with the West family, her boyfriend had recently been killed in a workplace accident. Anna would spend a lot of time in the West home. Rena would soon discover Fred's infidelity and in retaliation, she began having an affair with a man named John McLaughlin. Of course, Fred would soon find out about his wife's infidelity and be very angry. He caught Rena in an embrace with John. So Fred decided to punch his wife, making her scream. John then punched Fred in response to his actions toward Rena. After receiving a punch from his wife's lover, Fred drew a knife and grazed it against John's abdomen. John would punch Fred another time, and after the second punch, he stopped defending himself. John and Rena would continue their affair, and every time he saw Rena, he was astounded by the bruises and black eyes she wore. Her lover would state that Fred couldn't tackle a man, but he wasn't so slow in attacking women. As it became increasingly more and more apparent that Fred was beating his wife, John beat up Fred. John would also witness another instance in which Charmaine, just a little older than a toddler, had asked Fred for some ice cream from his van. Instead of getting her ice cream or making up some excuse as to why she couldn't have one, he struck her hard against the head which John would attack him for in return. On November 4th, 1965, Fred accidentally ran over and killed a small boy in Glasgow with his ice cream truck. Authorities cleared him of any wrongdoing. Still, he feared potential reprisals from the locals. Due to this fear, he moved to Gloucester with Charmaine and Anna Marie, renting a caravan at the Timberland Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleve in December. His wife would not join him and their children until February 1966, along with their nanny and Anna McFall. Issa McNeil and Anna McFall both came from impoverished backgrounds and they hoped that in this move, they would be able to find work. Shortly after the move, Fred started working in a slaughterhouse. It is speculated that working at the slaughterhouse had a profound effect on Fred. It is highly suspected that it was here that he started to develop a morbid obsession with corpses, blood, and dismemberment. With the affairs and the move, Rena and Fred's marriage became more and more unstable. Fred started to show dominance and control over the three women living with him and was prone to having violent mood swings, of which Rena and McNeil would catch the brunt. He would also go on to encourage Rena to go back into prostitution so they could receive more income. He was known to have physically attacked Charmaine at least a few times by this point, and it is speculated that Fred had started sexually abusing her at this time. With all of this going on, Rena wanted out of her marriage. She wanted to take her children and go back to Glasgow. So she called John McLaughlin, begging him to rescue her, her children, and Issa McNeil from Fred. To escape, Rena, John, and McNeil devised a plan. John and McNeil's boyfriend, John Trotter, would drive to Bishop's Cleave and take everyone except Anna McFall back to Scotland. On the night Rena, Charmaine, Anna, and McNeil were supposed to meet the men, Fred arrived with an oddly calm Anna McFall. It is widely believed that she had informed Fred of the plan Rena cooked up. Anna also stated her intention of staying with Fred to work as the children's nanny. Of course, an altercation ensued between Fred and his wife's lover. Fred clutched onto his children as John struck him several times. Authorities were called to break up the fight. Ultimately, John McLaughlin, John Trotter, McNeil, and Rena left while Fred threatened to kill Rena if he ever saw her again. Rena was miserable without her daughters and would frequently travel to England to visit her girls. At first, she would maintain a friendship with McFall, but soon she started to resent her playing mom to her children. Rena stole some belongings from Fred's trailer on October 11th in an act of resentment and returned to Glasgow. The next month, she was arrested and returned to Gloucester. On November 29th, she was sentenced to three years probation. Fred testified at the hearing and admitted he was living with McFall. However, he would falsely claim that Anna intended to return to Scotland. Rena would continue to alternate between living with Fred and returning to Glasgow. According to letters Anna McFall sent to her family, Anne McNeil in Glasgow, she believed that having a relationship with Fred would provide her with a better life. In early 1967, Anna became pregnant with Fred's child. She would try her best to persuade Fred to divorce Rena and marry her. But things wouldn't work out the way she had hoped. In July 1967, 18-year-old Anna McFall mysteriously disappeared when she was eight months pregnant. Due to the growing stress from Anna's requests, Fred killed her. Not only did he kill his mistress and their unborn child, but he would slowly and methodically dismember her corpse and bury her along with the fetus. Her limbs were carefully separated at the joints. He would also cut off her fingers and toes. She would never be reported missing. After Anna McFall's disappearance, he acted very nervously. Rena would eventually move back into the trailer with Fred, and they would relocate to Lake House Caravan Park. For a time, the couple got along well until he returned to his old self. He happily pushed Rina into prostitution to earn more money. He also started openly fondling Charmaine. Rina would leave the family again. During the times when Fred did not have a woman to look after his children, He would temporarily leave them in the care of Gloucester Social Services. In January 1968, 15-year-old Mary Bastolm was abducted from a bus stop on Bristol Road in Gloucester. Many links were tying Fred to Mary's disappearance. He was a customer at the cafe where she worked. She would serve him tea often. He was employed in a building behind her work. Mary had been seen with a girl fitting the description of Anna McFall and one witness claimed to have seen Mary in Fred's car. In February, Fred's mother died of complications from a gallbladder operation. After his mother's death, he would begin a series of thefts which resulted in him changing jobs frequently. On November 28, 1968, Fred was working as a bakery delivery driver when he met a girl named Rose Letts. Rosemary Pauline Letts was born on November 29, 1951, in Northam, Devon, England, to Bill and Daisy Letts. She was the fifth child born of seven children. Her father suffered from schizophrenia, while her mother suffered from severe depression. Bill was said to physically abuse his wife and children, whom he always demanded complete obedience from. Often described as enjoying disciplining his family and seemingly looking for reasons to beat them. Due to his mental instability and other factors, he was not considered an ideal employee because he was constantly drifting from job to job and he did not have any desirable skills. So because of this, the family would always be short on money. Bill's son Andrew would later say of his father, If he felt we were in bed too late, he would throw a bucket of cold water over us he would order us to dig the garden, and that meant the whole garden. Then he would inspect it like an army officer, and if he was not satisfied, we would have to do it all over again. We were not allowed to speak and play like normal kids. If we were noisy, he would go for us with a belt or chunk of wood. He would beat you black and blue until Mum got in between us. Then she would get a good hiding, Daisy's depression deepened after giving birth to three daughters and a son while also trying to cope with a violent husband. She was hospitalized in 1953 and treated with electroshock therapy. After receiving numerous treatments, Daisy gave birth to Rosemary. The effect of the electroshock therapy while pregnant with Rosemary was unknown. However, many considered this treatment to have impacted the child significantly as she was considered to be different from other children. While she was a baby, she developed a habit of rocking herself in her cot. If she were to be in her pram without the brake on, she would rock so violently that it crept across the room. This habit would continue as she became older but she would only rock her head for hours. Her family believed that this indicated she was a bit slow, but as she grew, she would continue to swing her head for hours, until it seemed as though she had hypnotized herself into semi-consciousness. Because of this, she earned the nickname Dozy Rosie. Rose was described as not very intelligent, But she had very pretty features. While many claimed she was not very bright, she was smart enough to stay in her father's good graces, always doing whatever he wished immediately. This allowed her to receive affection from her father as well as escape his beatings. However, her lack of intelligence would be seen while attending school. Rose would also receive a lot of bullying from her classmates as she was overweight, but she would often lash out at her tormentors and attack those who teased her, giving her a reputation as an ill-tempered, aggressive loner. When she was a teenager, Rose was very interested in sex. She would walk around her home naked after taking baths and climb into bed with her younger brother where she would fondle him. Her father forbade her to date, but because she was chubby and had an aggressive attitude, the boys her age weren't interested in her anyway. She would instead focus her attention on the older men in her town. Rose and the other girls in the community feared for their safety in January 1968, when 15-year-old Mary Bastholm disappeared at a bus stop. Mary was on her way to visit her boyfriend when she was abducted. She was carrying a Monopoly set, and all authorities could find were a few pieces from the board game at the bus stop. Her disappearance was believed to be linked to several other rapes which had occurred in the area. For a while, Rose took caution when she was out. However, she would soon find herself bored and lonely. She would go out to find the company of a man. In one of these instances, an older man reportedly took advantage of her naivety and raped her. Early in 1969, Daisy Letts was finally done with her husband's beatings and took 15-year-old Rose and moved in with her daughter, Glennis and her husband. While living with her sister out of her father's watchful eye, she would spend a lot of time out at night. Her brother-in-law claimed Rose would go on with men much older than she was, and at one point she even tried to seduce him. Later on that year, Rose decided to move back in with her father, which surprised a lot of people. Some rumors began to spread that Rose and her father had an incestuous relationship, and Bill Letts had a reputation for molesting young girls. But these were just rumors; they're not verified or proven to be true. In her teens, many expected Rose Letts to lead an unhappy and hard life, as she was not very smart and very ill-tempered. She wasn't productive and rebelled against authority. Shortly after turning fifteen, Rose would meet Fred West while they waited for the same bus. Rose initially was not interested in him at all due to his unkempt appearance, it made her believe he was a tramp. However, it didn't take long for her to become flattered by the attention he continuously gave her over the following days, as he sat alongside her at the bus stop. She refused to go on a date with Fred twice, but would eventually allow him to accompany her home. Upon their initial conversations, Fred was able to find out that even though Rose never had a boyfriend, she was a very promiscuous girl. He was also able to receive sympathy from her by mentioning that he and his two daughters had been abandoned by his wife. He would also claim that he wanted to have more children, which garnered more sympathy from her. Fred would also discover that Rose worked at a bread shop nearby. He would then persuade a woman to enter the shop, presenting her with a gift, and explain that a man outside asked her to present this gift to her. A few minutes later, Fred would enter the bakery, asking Rose on a date that evening. Soon after, they started a relationship and she would frequently visit the Lake House Caravan Park. Rose would also become a motherly figure to Charmaine and Anna Marie, noting that they were neglected and providing them with care and affection. In the early days of their relationship, Rose would insist that she and Fred take the girls to go gather wildflowers. In just a matter of weeks from her first encounter with Fred, Rose quit her job at the bread shop and became the nanny of Charmaine and Anna Marie. This decision was made on the pretense that Fred would provide her with sufficient money to give her parents on Fridays so that it would convince them that she still worked at the bread shop. After dating for several months, Rose decided to introduce her boyfriend to her family, who were not happy with her choice of partner. Daisy Letts was less than impressed with Fred and pegged him to be a pathological liar. Bill Letts fiercely disapproved of his daughter's relationship with 27-year-old Fred West. And threatened him. The parents would go on to forbid their daughter from continuing her relationship with Fred. However, she would defy their wishes. In response to their daughter's retaliation, the parents visited Gloucestershire Social Services, explaining that their underage daughter was dating an older man. They also told them that they had heard a rumor that Rose was engaging in prostitution at his trailer. So in August 1969, social services placed Rose in a home for troubled teenagers, and she was only allowed to leave under controlled conditions. When she was allowed to visit her parents on the weekend, she would always take that opportunity to visit Fred. Rose was able to leave the home for troubled teenagers on her 16th birthday and return to her parents. At the time, Fred was serving a 30-day sentence for theft and unpaid fines. But when Fred was released, Rose left her parents' home to move into a flat with Fred. Shortly afterward, he would collect Charmaine and Anna Marie from social services. Bill Letts would make one more attempt at preventing his daughter from seeing Fred. But during an examination in February 1970, everyone found out Rose was pregnant. She was again placed into care. However, she was discharged on March 6th, under the agreement that she would terminate her pregnancy and return to her family. But instead of following this agreement, she went to live with Fred. Her father then forbade his daughter from ever setting foot in his house ever again. Three months later, Fred and Rose left the flat and moved to the ground floor of a two-story house on Midland Road. On October 17, 1970, Rose gave birth to her first child, a daughter named Heather Ann. But only two months later, Fred was sent to jail yet again for stealing car tires and was sentenced to serve six and a half months. At 17 years old, Rose looked after all three girls while Fred was in jail. Charmaine and Anna Marie were also told to refer to Rose as their mother. With three children to take care of, a boyfriend always in trouble with the law and money problems, Rose's ill-temper constantly flared she began resenting the fact that she had to take care of Rena's children and started treating them horribly. Anna Marie claimed that she and Charmaine were frequently subjected to criticism, beatings, and other forms of punishment in Rose's care. While Anna Marie would show her emotions in response to the physical and mental abuse Rose put them through, Charmaine infuriated Rose because she would not break. She wasn't going to give Rose that satisfaction she wanted. She remained stoic, unbothered, and she refused to cry or display any sign of grief, no matter how severely she was physically abused. Charmaine would tell Anna Marie that she believed her mom would come to save her, Anna would also state that her sister would constantly antagonize Rose by making statements like, My real mommy wouldn't swear or shout at us. A childhood friend of Charmaine's would recall an incident where she walked into the West's flat to see Charmaine standing on a chair, naked, gagged, and her hands bound behind her back with a belt as Rose stood beside her with a large wooden spoon in hand. The child stated that Charmaine appeared calm and unconcerned, while Anna Marie stood by the door with a blank expression. On March 28, 1971, Charmaine received treatment for a severe puncture wound on her left ankle at Gloucester Royal Hospital. Rose explained to the staff that the injury occurred from a household accident. Fred was expected to be released on June 24, 1971. Rose brought Charmaine, Anna-Marie, and Heather to visit their father on June 15th, but sometime between the 15th and the 24th, Charmaine was suddenly missing. Anna-Marie would ask about her sister's whereabouts, to which Rose would state that Rena took her home with her. Rose explained Charmaine's disappearance to others by claiming that Rena had called and taken her eldest daughter to live with her in Bristol and she informed staff at Charmaine's school that she moved to London with her mother. But Rena never did collect her eldest daughter. Charmaine was in the coal cellar of the home until Fred returned from prison. He would bury Charmaine's naked body in the yard close to the back door of the flat. Before burying her, he would remove her fingers, toes, and kneecaps. This incident provided a great opportunity for Fred because it formed a secret between him and Rose that he could hold over her head for the rest of her life. When Anna Marie asked her father why her mother only took Charmaine, Fred retorted, she wouldn't want you love, you're the wrong color. When Rose murdered Charmaine, she created a bit of a problem for Fred. He was still married to Rena and she would sporadically come check on her daughters. It would only be a matter of time before she would come looking for Charmaine. With Charmaine dead, this created a problem. But It would also provide him with an opportunity. In August 1971, Rena began searching for her daughters. She was unaware that Fred and her children had moved. As any mother would be, she was depressed and extremely anxious when she didn't know where her children were. When she finally received Fred's Midland address, Rena sought out to confront him. It is believed that she wanted to discuss receiving custody of Charmaine and Anna Marie. It was reported that she went to Fred's father to question what happened to Charmaine. Fred saw that he had no choice but to kill Rina. She was raising too many questions about Charmaine, always bothering him about taking custody of his children and popping up whenever she felt like it. It is believed he got her very drunk and then strangled her either at his house on Midland Road or in his vehicle. He would then dismember her body, cutting off her fingers and toes. After this, he placed her remains into bags and buried her in the same general vicinity of Anna McFall. Fred would go on to marry Rosemary on January 29, 1972, at the Gloucester Register office. He would lie on the marriage certificate, claiming he was a bachelor. The only person in attendance was Fred's brother, who acted as best man. The family would then move from their Midland Road home to 25 Cromwell Street, while Rose was pregnant with their second child. The exterior of the house wasn't much to look at, but on the inside, it was very spacious. There was a garage, a garden, and a large cellar. Fred had some pretty nefarious plans for this cellar. But to help pay for the home, the couple would take in lodgers. On June 1st, 1972, Rose gave birth to May, June. For additional entertainment and income, Rose and Fred would take advantage of the large population of West Indians in Gloucester. Shortly after giving birth to May-June, Rose began working as a prostitute, operating her business under the name Mandy, from an upstairs room at the Cromwell residence. Fred highly encouraged this behavior and would take erotic photos of Rose, running them as ads in magazines. The room where Rose conducted her business was known throughout the household as Mandy's room. It had several peepholes allowing Fred to watch his wife as she entertained her clients. And this wasn't as a means to ensure his wife wasn't hurt. It was purely for self-gratification. He also installed a baby monitor in the room so he could listen from anywhere in the house. Mandy's room contained a private bar and a red light outside the door to warn those in the household that she was not to be disturbed. The only key to this room was always in Rose's possession as she wore it around her neck. Her husband would also install a separate doorbell to the house which clients were instructed to use whenever they visited. A lot of the money earned from Rose's prostitution business was used on home improvement projects. But this venture wasn't only for money, as sometimes it was just for pure fun. Rose would have casual sex with male and female lodgers in their home, as well as those Fred encountered while at work. Rose would go on to brag to several people that no man or woman could ever completely satisfy her. While engaging in these activities with women, Rose was known to gradually increase the level of brutality to which she subjected her partner. These acts would include partially suffocating them or inserting increasingly large dildos into their body. Rose would become excited if the woman resisted or expressed any pain or fear, but then she would ask, aren't you woman enough to take it? Her husband would also usually participate in threesomes with his wife. The duo took pleasure from pushing women beyond their sexual limits, typically during sessions involving bondage. They would even admit that They found gratification involving a strong measure of dominance, pain, and violence. The Wests would soon amass a large collection of bondage, restraining devices, magazines, and photographs. They would later expand their collection to include videos depicting bestiality and graphic sexual abuse of children. By 1983, Rose had given birth to eight children. At least three of these children were conceived by her clients. But Fred accepted the children as his own. As the children got older, they wondered why their skin was darker than that of their siblings. Their father would simply lie and tell them it was because his great-grandmother was a black woman. By the time each of the West children reached seven years old, they were assigned numerous daily chores to perform in the house. They were not allowed to go outside and socialize. On the rare occasion when they could socialize with other kids, it was only allowed in the presence of their parents. And they would have to follow some pretty strict rules. If they disobeyed, this was met with serious punishment, which almost always meant it would be physical. Mostly the violence the children suffered from would be inflicted by Rose. While the violence was never justifiable, sometimes it was completely baseless, careless, or inflicted for the sole purpose of Rose's gratification. While she was always quick to jump to violence, she would always take care not to mark the children's faces or hands during these attacks. Rose's son, Stephen, was mopping the kitchen floor with a cloth. When Rose accidentally stepped into the bowl of water he was using, she instantly became angry and hit her son over the head with the bowl. As this wasn't enough for her, she repeatedly kicked him in the head and chest, shouting, You did that on purpose, you little swine. Another instance of Rose's violence happened when she became angry about a missing kitchen utensil. She grabbed a knife she had been using to cut a slab of meat, and would repeatedly inflict light scour marks on May June's chest. Until her ribcage was covered with light knife wounds. May screamed, No mom, no mom, as Heather and Stephen stood by, helplessly sobbing. Between 1972 and 1992, the West Children had been admitted to the accident and emergency department of local hospitals 31 times. Not once were any of these instances reported to social services. The children weren't the only targets in the household when it came to physical attacks. Apparently, Rose would also go after her husband. In August, 1974, Rose chased Fred with a carving knife in her hand. Fred would run into a room, slamming the door shut behind him as the knife embedded itself in the door. Rose's fingers slid down the blade of the knife, almost severing three of her fingers. In response to this, Rose calmly wrapped her hand in a towel and said, Look what you done, fella. You've got to take me to the hospital now. But the abuse wouldn't end there. The home improvements that Rose worked hard for funded her husband's dark plans for the cellar, a soundproof torture chamber. Their first client for this room was Fred's eight-year-old daughter, Anna Marie, in September 1972. Anna was forced to undress, but as the frightened girl hesitated, Rose tore her clothing off. Fred and Rose would go on to tell her she was lucky that she had such caring parents who were making sure she could satisfy her future husband. Her hands were then tied behind her and a gag was placed in her mouth. Rose held her down as she encouraged Fred to rape her. The pain from the attack was so severe that Anna would miss several days of school. She was also warned by her parents that if she ever told anyone about what happened, they would beat her. But this abuse didn't end. She would also be strapped down while her father raped her during his lunch breaks. On occasion, Rose would sexually abuse Anna Marie and would later feel extreme gratification in having the young girl perform degrading acts. She would bind Anna Marie to various items of furniture that encourage her husband to rape her, and she would force the child to perform household chores while wearing sexual devices and miniskirts. The following month, the Wests hired 17-year-old Caroline Owens as their nanny. The couple happened to pick her up one night along a secluded country road as she hitchhiked home from her boyfriend's house. During their conversation, they learned that Caroline disliked her stepfather and she was looking for a job. So, they offered her to be a part-time nanny to three of their children, with the promise that they would drive her home every Tuesday. Caroline would eventually move into 25 Cromwell Street, sharing a room with Anna Marie, who Caroline described as being very withdrawn. Caroline, of course, noticed a few questionable things. Rose would explain that the reason there was a steady stream of men visiting her at all hours was because she worked as a masseuse. Caroline also recalled Fred telling her he was skilled in performing abortions, should she ever need such a service. He would boast of the many abortions he performed and the women were so overjoyed, they would offer him their sexual services as compensation. She also recalled the patriarch talking about sex incessantly as he and Rose tried their best to seduce the girl. When she began receiving these advances, she was repulsed and informed them that she was leaving. As the West's knew, Caroline had a penchant for hitchhiking, They prepared a plan to abduct the 17-year-old to satisfy their disgusting needs. With the abduction, the intention of raping her was a must for them. And the possibility of murdering her was a very likely scenario. But obviously, the true purpose from Fred's standpoint was rape. But he also wanted to see if his wife was truly willing to help in the abduction. So, on December 6th, 1972, the couple put their plan into action. They lured Caroline into their vehicle with an apology for their conduct and offered to bring her home. She didn't realize just how severe a mistake she had made. The young girl initially believed the Wests were being sincere in their apologies. Rose would climb into the back seat with her, stating that she wanted to have a girl's chat while Fred drove. Her real intent was to fondle the girl while Fred asked whether she had just had intercourse with her boyfriend that evening. Caroline protested, at which Fred stopped the car, called her a bitch, then punched her. When she was knocked unconscious, He and Rose bound and gagged her with a scarf and duct tape. Caroline stated that while at Cromwell Street, she was given a drugged cup of tea to drink before she was gagged again, after which she was subject to a prolonged sexual assault from Fred and Rose. She recalled Fred stating that her clitoris was unusual and he lashed her genitals with a leather belt. When she screamed, Rose smothered her with a pillow, restrained her neck, and began performing oral sex on her. While going through this torture, Caroline finally realized that the more she resisted, the longer she would be attacked. So she stopped resisting. The following morning, one of the children knocked on the door of the room she was being held in. Caroline screamed for help. Fred threatened that he and Rose would lock her up in the cellar and allow his black friends to have their way with her. And when they had finished, he would bury her body beneath the paving stones of Gloucester. He further claimed that he had killed hundreds of young girls. The pair then calmly asked Caroline if she would consider returning to work as their nanny. She immediately accepted the offer, seeing it as a way to escape. She started to vacuum the house to show that she was willing to work in the household. But later that day, Caroline would find her opportunity to run away. At first, she was too ashamed to tell her mother what happened to her. Her mother was obviously worried when she saw her daughter come home with welts, bruises, and she had laceration so deep it went down and exposed the last layer of skin, where it's just fat and connects your skin to your muscles and bones. It was all the way down. Caroline would eventually break down sobbing, telling her mother what happened her mother immediately reported what happened to her daughter to the authorities. And the Wests were arrested and charged with assault, indecent assault, actual bodily harm, and rape. That case was tried at Gloucester Magistrates Court on January 12, 1973. But Caroline couldn't face her perpetrators, so all charges pertaining to her sexual assault were dropped. The Wests agreed to plead guilty to the reduced charges of indecent assault and causing bodily harm. Both were fined 50 euros and were allowed to walk free from court. Caroline was so upset by this news, she attempted to commit suicide. Soon after, the Wests would become friends with a 19 year old seamstress named Linda Goff. Fred became acquainted with the girl through a male lodger in early 1973. Linda would become a frequent visitor at the Cromwell residence and it is believed she would engage in affairs with two male lodgers. Linda moved into the Cromwell street home on April 19th to become the children's new nanny. It was then, or around April 20th, when other lodgers in the home were told that Linda was told to leave the house after she hit one of their children, a claim that would be repeated after Linda's mother contacted the Wests to ask where her daughter was. She seemed to have just vanished without a trace, but in reality, she was murdered. Fred dismembered her body, removing her fingers, toes, and kneecaps before burying her in a pit in the garage. Her body was discovered in the most horrendous way that speaks volumes of what this poor girl had to endure before dying, which we are going to talk about at the end of the episode. The Wests were celebrating their success. They walked away with nothing more than a slap on the wrist for the abduction and rape of Caroline Owens. They murdered Linda Goff with no one becoming suspicious and no police being involved. Then in August, their son, Stefan, was born. By November, they would go out looking for another young girl to gratify themselves. The couple went out on November 10th and happened across 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper, who had just left her boyfriend's house. A girl who was placed in the care of her grandmother after her mother passed away in 1966. They abducted the young girl, amused themselves with her, and after a week of putting her through absolute hell, they grew tired of her. They strangled or suffocated her, dismembered her body in the same old fashion as the other women, and then buried her. Fred continued on his home improvement projects as he enlarged the cellar and demolished the garage to build an extension to the main house. It was of no concern to him that he decided to make these improvements at strange hours. But these improvements weren't as innocent as everyone thought.